Hello and welcome back everybody. I am Sam Parrish. It is a beautiful day at the beginning of March here in London and this is Parrish Notices, an arts and media podcast. So we are officially no longer a one-hit wonder. We are now officially a two-hit wonder. So I'd like to give a very, very warm thank you to everybody who listened to the first episode. Everyone was very kind about it, gave some amazing feedback, amazing learning experience recording that first episode. So I'm hoping that I can just continue to make the podcast better and better for everybody listening. The first long episode should be coming out very soon. I have the ideas ready. I have them structured. I just need to get them written and scripted. And hopefully those should be coming out sooner rather than later. In the meantime, however, I have three reviews for you today, three film reviews, so I'm going to get into those quickly as possible. I'd like to thank everybody once again for tuning in. First up, we're going to be talking about Knives Out, an American mystery movie that came out at the very end of last year, written and directed by Ryan Johnson of Last Jedi fame, or perhaps Infamy. And it's chiefly starring Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, and Anna de Armas. The movie concerns the death of a venerable old mystery writer, uh, a sort of Stephen King figure, and the fallout on his extended family as a consulting detective by the name of Benoit Blanc is inserted into their lives to uncover the mysterious circumstances under which he died. Now, I haven't seen Johnson's previous movie, Brick, from several years ago at this stage, but it is really fun to see him step out of that sort of house style of the Disney Star Wars movies. I recall being really impressed by how each scene is given sort of time to breathe and space is given to each character. There's a lot of sort of basic shot reverse shot, but the scenes live and die on the timing, on the sort of twitch of an eyebrow and a wry smile. One of the movie's big strengths is how it's able to convey information simply by putting it in the frame. Uh, The placement and framing of scenes is very, very strong. There's this labyrinthine house, which is the primary setting of this intricate whodunit. And it feels very familiar by the end, which, as it turns out, is pretty important to understanding the mystery. This is one of the rare movies where I found myself picking through the credits looking for who was responsible for some of my favourite details. So first and foremost, John Rock and Aidan Stanford, who were responsible for the colouring, and Jenny Egan, who was responsible for the costume. Everyone looks fantastic in this movie, whether it's Jamie Lee Curtis's bright pink pantsuit or Chris Evans' bright red coat that he wears around for most of the movie. Not to mention the production design by David Crank, the art direction by Jeremy Woodward, the set decoration by David Schlesinger. As I've said previously, most of the movie takes place in this grand old house full of arcane props and great portraits and roaring fires. It's really just a delight to watch from beginning to end and listen to actually. The music choices are very, very fun and consistent throughout. But putting aside all my praise for this movie's style, it is still a detective story, and the question has to be how well does it pull off its mystery? Does it treat the viewer like an idiot? Does it cheat? If you as the audience were just a little cleverer, could you have figured it out? One day I'll probably do a longer form essay about what makes a good detective story, but for now let us concern ourselves with Knives Out. And I'm happy to say that the central murder mystery is, frankly, an awful lot of fun. It's not quite a piece of clockwork unfolding piece by piece like a Agatha Christie story or an Arthur Conan Doyle story, but it's more like, as a character in the film says, without giving too much away, more like a jigsaw that's filling in around the edges and seemingly delighting in holding back the final centerpieces from us. The twists and turns of the film are wonderfully executed and they manage never actually to feel cheap. 
I've yet to see it again, but I'd love to watch it with people who'd never seen it before and just kind of watch them watch it. It masterfully plays on your assumptions and the lens you view information through, just barely slipping into that fatal feeling for a mystery story at the end of, oh, what is going on? Just because it's bombarding you with so much information. The payoffs are also all very neat. I really love a movie that rewards you for paying attention. And there's a couple of points towards the end of the movie where you can almost tell what's about to happen. The little detective part of your brain goes, ah, and then, yeah, you get a real laugh out of it. It's a lot of fun. I think the movie's greatest strength, however, is its heart. It's full of cynical characters, but the film itself is not cynical at all. And you really come to like the cast by the end, especially the central two-hander. Overall, as you can probably tell, I'm a little biased towards this movie. I had a fantastic time watching it. The verdict overall is, is definitely a recommendation, but make sure you're in a good mood and ready to follow along, I suppose. Otherwise, I can imagine it would be quite a frustrating experience. Next up, we're talking about Jojo Rabbit, written and directed by Taika Waititi, based on the novel Caging Skies by Christine Lunens. The movie is starring Roman Griffin Davis, quintessential double-barreled child actor, across from Thomasin McKenzie, who was previously in a movie called Leave No Trace, which I actually thought was really lovely. Also providing some really strong performances are Sam Rockwell, Scarlett Johansson, and Stephen Merchant. The movie also stars Taika Waititi as a child's imaginary version of Adolf Hitler, which inevitably brings us to the premise of the movie, as a young boy in the Hitler Youth in the dying days of the Third Reich learns that his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their attic. So fertile ground for comedy, as you can imagine. I think a lot was made of the content of this movie prior to its release, but generally speaking, I think it stays on the right side of tasteful. Uh, all of the humour is at the expense of Nazis and their sympathisers and is aimed to make them look as ridiculous as possible. So it's very much in the tradition of people like Mel Brooks or uh, The Great Dictator by Charlie Chaplin. That being said, as a big fan of Waititi's work, I think it's fair to say that this is not his strongest movie by a decent way. Uh, I have a theory. Uh, I tend to believe that Waititi is at his best when left almost entirely to his own devices. In order to make a Thor movie, for example, he had to dump almost everything recognisable from the franchise up to that point. His most iconic movies, for me, have a very specific cadence and inflection and rely on a lot of sort of New Zealand cultural touchstones, and that's just never going to translate in a movie that's adapted from a novel and is really trying to completely change the genre of the novel. Caging Skies is by all accounts not a particularly funny book, and the choice to adapt it in this way leads to a few moments of really intense tonal whiplash. The strongest, and indeed the funniest portions of the movie, occur when it really starts to stray into surrealism and a long way from its roots. Memorably, the use of German language versions of pop songs from the second half of the 20th century, German language versions of, of Bowie and the Beatles and things like that, they stray a long way from a book, the compliments for which mostly based around how well-researched and how grounded it was. That being said, a lot of those sequences are really genuinely funny. I think my favourite sequence of the movie is one of the opening montages that equates Hitler's celebrity to the Beatles' celebrity in the 1960s, and that got a pretty strong chuckle out of me. 
I think the movie's greatest failing is really its inability to connect us with its characters. For example, Captain Klensendorf, Sam Rockwell's character, he is seemingly a complex and conflicted man, but the lack of attention given to him only serves to deepen the confusion surrounding a lot of his actions. Uh, Scarlett Johansson puts in a really wonderful, really memorable performance, really quirky performance, and though we're given hints at her motivations, the movie almost seems to get bored of her. At the heart of it all is the protagonist Jojo, who really comes across as mean-spirited and just unself-aware, a child who doesn't personally grow so much as just follow his impulses. Uh, you could argue that that's in character for a, a young teenage boy, but when you have to follow that character around for just shy of two hours, it really starts to grate. Overall, it's a good-looking movie with quite a few good laughs, but it doesn't quite make the cut for a recommendation. It's a movie with a slight identity problem and a big empathy problem. I would recommend watching Hump for the Wilder People instead. Last of all today, we're going to be talking about a little bit of a curveball, Overlord, a 2018 American war horror movie directed by Julius Avery, produced by the notorious J.J. Abrams. Seems to have been a little bit of a labor of love for his production company, co-written by Billy Ray and Mark L. Smith. If a few of those names are sounding a little bit unfamiliar, I wouldn't judge you. Uh, the movie appears to have been advertised pretty much on the strength of J.J. Abrams' production credit. Uh, Julius Avery, this seems to have been his sort of breakout project. Billy Ray was one of the co-creators and writers of a pretty critically acclaimed show in the mid-90s called Earth 2. I uh, haven't seen it personally. But perhaps most surprisingly is Mark L. Smith, who is one of the co-writers of the Oscar-winning Revenant. And as we're going to discuss, this seems to be a little bit of a departure from his previous fare. The movie stars Jovan Adipo, perhaps best known for performing across from Denzel Washington in Fences, and Wyatt Russell, a real workhorse actor, perhaps best known for his turn on Black Mirror in the episode Playtest. Uh, in variations on a theme, I promise this wasn't intentional, they play a pair of American soldiers as part of a squad who are inserted behind enemy lines before D-Day, who stumble across some sinister Nazi experiments. Now, I remember being quite excited for this movie when I saw the promotional material for it some years ago now, but I never really had a chance to see it. It never came to a cinema near me. I can now say, having finally seen it, it does not disappoint. It is gloriously silly bollocks. It's a throwback to the kind of knowingly cheesy, fun B-movie horror we see so little of these days. It's a really great antidote to the kind of self-serious, Blumhouse startle fests and even perhaps to the kind of ruffled collar horror movie I usually enjoy more, the Babadooks and Get Outs. In particular, I really admire the decision to do basically a straightforward war movie for the first 40-ish minutes of the film. It doesn't rush itself at all, and the early hints at strangeness when they first arrive in this small French village are some of the best flashes the film gets. Now, while it isn't the most grimace-inducing or nail-biting horror movie I've ever seen, it is still very effective. The gore is punchy and brutal, the suspenseful sequences draw you towards the edge of your seat, uh, in no small part because of Jovan Adipo's performance, he really puts on a, a great mask of terror, and overall the movie does a great job of really letting your imagination run wild about what kind of terrible things could be happening inside these laboratories. 
the performances are all pretty strong, especially Pilu Aspek as our sort of mustache-twirling Nazi captain villain. He's clearly having a great time. However, though as good as the performances are, they can't hide how thinly written the characters are. It feels like we're missing a few key scenes to flesh out people's backstories in order for us to really care about how or where they end up. That being said, I think the structure of the writing is one of the movie's biggest strengths. There's always a great sense of urgency, you're always clear on characters' limits and goals, everything always seems to make sense within the logic that's set up. It's a really strong sort of 101 screenwriting script, and I recommend anybody who enjoys writing or wants to get into screenwriting see this movie, because the nuts and bolts of it are really well executed. Maybe the movie's cardinal sin is how basically it's shot when some element shines so well. There's some really visually imaginative sets, there's some really fun creative sequences, and the cinematography doesn't really do them justice. In a way, this movie is almost like the opposite of Knives Out. Uh, if you like horror and you like action, and you want to switch your brain off for a couple of hours and see some dastardly villains get bested by some two-fisted heroes, I really recommend Overlord. It's a lot of fun. All right, that is going to wrap up this episode of Parish Notices, an arts and media podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have any feedback or anything else you'd like me to review, do get in touch at Parish Podcast on Twitter. That's P-A-R-R-I-S-H podcast on Twitter. Or we have an email now, samparishpodcast at gmail.com. We are now on iTunes and Spotify. So if you want to follow us on Spotify or give us a review on iTunes, we really appreciate it. It really helps the podcast out. In the next couple of episodes, I'm probably going to try to broaden away from film a little bit. There will still be film reviews, but I've had the opportunity to read some amazing graphic novels over the last few weeks, play some amazing tabletop material, but that's all to come. In the meantime, I'm Sam Parrish. Take care. Travel safe.